one of the biggest train wrecks I think I've seen over and over again, and people end up in divorce is they think, well, we never argue. So that's why our relationship is so great. And anytime I hear that, you guys, I'm always a little, <laughs> a little cautious mm-hmm. because more often than not, the reason why they never argue is because they never talk about anything significant. And now. <laughs> I'm the captain now. <laughs> Coming to you from the K2 studios in San Diego, California. This sounds great. You sound amazing. I always sound amazing. It's the world famous. Everybody sitting off like BFS. Chris and Christine Show. Hey, what's happening? Thank you so much for listening. And I am Chris. And I'm Christine. And welcome to episode 173 of the Chris and Christine Show. Oh, it's so great to be back in the studio, back in the captain's chair all over again, baby. Oh, I know. You like to be the center of attention, don't you? That's why they call me Mr. Positivity. <laughs> Nobody calls you that. I just named it right now. I know. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You're trying to be positive so that people think you're positive. Uh, well, I'm working on it, you know. I mean, it's been a very rough week for me. How's your week been, by the way? Don't talk about me, but how's your week been? What you, no, you can't just start like that and then like defer to me. What do you mean it's been a rough week for you? I just have this shoulder pain that's killing me. I don't know what I did. Work work injuries or something, but uh, it's been a really, a lot of long hard days this week and I don't only work four. I know you're rubbing rub my face. No, but I, I'm not, I'm not downplaying it. You tell everybody what's going on. Yeah. Just that it's every day. It's been very busy at work and, uh, cause you haven't just been working like eight to 10. You've been working like 12, 13 hour shifts, right? Yes. Yes. And I Plus just, like an hour to get to work, an hour to get home. So you're, no, it's not an hour to work. Well, it's like 30 minutes. I mean, but you go, you have to go get changed and everything. Hey, I'm, like, um, this is oh, my you're playing empathy. it up for me. I get it. Um, yeah, yeah. This is empathy. Oh, yeah. Oh, so you. you're gone like 14, 15 hours plus a day. <sighs> and I don't think I've been sleeping well lately. I don't know what it is. You haven't. Um, you say I've been snoring. I think. Oh, it- my word. <laughs> That's like understatement of the year. Snore baby 101. Yeah. Well, I think it's because I, it's maybe it's allergies. This time of year, lots of allergies, and it's just very, nose feels very stuffy. Like, I just feel like I can't breathe all the time. It's because you make us sleep with the windows open now. If you just let me close everything up and put the air back on, it would solve all of life's problems. Hey, speaking of running air conditioning and being heat, it's we are now moving into fall. So, I think the first day of fall was yesterday, I believe it was. You just totally skated by my desire to have the air conditioner on. I, I'm telling you, it's a real solution to helping you sleep better. Oh yeah. Well, maybe a machine like there's like a, what's that like CPAC machine? What's the machine I'm thinking of? CPAC? What's the machine? CPAC. That's what I said. And you put on your face and it like makes you breathe or something. Sounds like a breath, not a breath, what's it called? The oxygen machine? Like Kind uh, of. Okay. Well, I don't know. Cause if I, I worry about you, first of all, you, you do not get a lot of sleep. I will very much empathize with that because here's like your normal schedule. So you leave around like 2.30. You've been getting home around like, I don't know, 3.30 or 4 a.m. So you leave at 2.30 p.m. You're getting home at like 3.30 or 4 a.m. By the time you get to bed, it's like maybe 4, 4.30, just depending on you know how late you got home. And then you get up by 10.00. 
or 10, 15. If it's like, if you're like very lazy, you'll lay there for like 10 or 15 minutes. But by then like Clover's having a fit because she heard your alarm. Oh, yeah. And she hears your alarm every morning. And the minute it goes off, she starts whining for you. Um, so then like you get up at like 10, 15, come down, you know, have your slow hour or so of coffee wake up time. I'm a very slow morning person. Like I, I'm not one person that really can just get up at the crack of dawn or like the alarm you goes You can't up. get up and go. I, I can't. I you literally to. can't. <laughs> it's, not my, it's not my ability. Maybe I'm just getting older. I think the older they get, the less I can do that. No, I think it's because like you, it, when I finish telling everybody your schedule, like it'll make a lot more sense. So you get up at like 10, 15, you come down. We have coffee together because I normally try to take a little bit of a morning break if I'm home. But you spend like an hour, hour and 15 minutes, like slowly waking up. So by then we're talking like 11, 15, 11, 30. And for context purposes, everybody, by 2.30, he has to be out the door and it starts all over again. So from like 11.30 to 2.30, you have to do, you know, anything personal that you need to take care of, paying the bills, getting back to people, anything podcast related, podcast editing, uh, running any errands, going to get the oil changed in the car, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, not to mention, you know, going to get showered and getting ready and all of that kind of stuff. And so, you know, when you really do look at it, when we get into, once we start your work week on Tuesdays until Saturday mornings, it's like just you get into like machine mode where you just like eat, sleep, work, eat, sleep, work. That's why I think when we were dating, it was easier to not have me around maybe because you didn't have to worry about like, first of all, we just didn't see each other typically like Tuesday through Friday when we were dating. It was just understood. Like it was just too busy. Like I right. was working. We had opposite schedules. Yeah. 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 Now that you were, when you finally moved in and we got married and they had the, the house and the COVID happened where you were home working from home more often, it was able to see you more often. I really do appreciate our coffee dates and coffee time. Right. We never had that before. Before it was like, you know, the weekends or maybe a lunch date occasionally. I would say like, that was the thing like COVID Although it was, you know, it's been hard that everybody went through it and it changed so much of our world. The one silver lining is that it actually did give us an opportunity to be around each other more that we would not have had because we would have gotten married and I would have gone right back to work and in the office five days a week and you, your regular schedule and you know, I I don't know what, I don't know how our relationship would be different. I wonder if we wouldn't bicker as much if I wasn't home as much. Like if we didn't see each other as much. Oh yeah. Wasn't the thing you always said that like uh, distance makes the heart uh, grow fonder? I think so. Yeah. But yeah. I think it also leaves room for like miscommunications and feeling like disconnected from each other if you don't see each other as much. So, I mean, there's a benefit and a drawback. Like we're now I'm back in the office two days a week and my first day of the week is Mondays, which you're home, which I think may actually be a little bit nice for you because it gives you a little bit of quiet at home. I don't know. What do yeah, you think? Yeah. I am trying to figure out, figure the whole 
thing out, you know, and I, and I always think about like, if I wanted to, if you wanted to, I could go to day shift on the same schedule. No. I, have, I could, no. meaning that I had to be there super early, but I would be home at night. The only benefit I'd be home at night. But then I know a lot of people do that. They will work day shift so they can be kind of at home at night because you got to bed er- so early. So I don't know though, because like I like my really. nights. I like my Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday evenings where I can focus on the business. Oh, totally. And, yeah. And I- compartmentalize and not have to feel like you're being neglected because I'm working for hours at a time. I feel like I was thinking about this the other day. I don't know what it is in me when you're gone at work, even though I've worked an entire work day in my regular job, I feel this like guilt that you're working and I'm not. So if I'm like sitting in, yeah, if I'm like sitting and watching Netflix, I'll like make myself get my computer out and do work. Almost like I'm punishing myself. You know, it's funny you say that because I feel the exact same way when you're at work. So on Mondays when you're at work and I'm home, I'm like running around. I want to do a bunch of stuff like go get the kids, podcast stuff, work on this, work on that. Like I feel like I should be on the clock and not just like sitting around. I got to tell you something. The other day was the first time in a really long time that I actually had some free time before I go to work where I sat down and actually watched Netflix. I haven't done that in years. But why is that? Why is it that we feel the need to like be busy while the other one is working? It's almost as if we're not giving ourselves permission for self-care. That's not a really healthy cycle to be in. Well, I think, I I don't know. Maybe it's because we feel like, you know, it's like when you have people over your house and you're like always trying to be like busy, like cleaning and doing something to make yourself look busy instead of just standing around and sitting around doing nothing. We have company over, you know what I'm saying? Maybe I mean, maybe for you, but not really for me. But I always yes. kind of feel like okay. that too. If I have company over, I, I, I'm like picking stuff up and I'm kind of like walking around the place and kind of making sure everything's cool. But I'm not, I feel like I'm in the, like when you do the flower weddings, the wedding stuff, you're like in the coordinator mode. Versus the guest mode. Okay. And that's the kind of mode I feel like when people are here at the house and we're entertaining and things like that. Even though it's my house and I want to just like relax in it and enjoy a weekend or whatever. Right. But I feel like I'm part of the staff. <laughs> I have to like make everything's going and the guests are well taken care of. But yeah, I feel like maybe we need to give each other permission to just be lazy when we're not like, like when I'm at work and you're not to like tell you, Hey, you can just do whatever. Like I like that. Don't feel that you have to, you know, do X, Y, and Z. If there's things that need to be done around the house, we typically talk through them and I'm like, oh hey, while I'm gone, do you mind right. doing these one, two, and three things? But I also try not to give you a list of to do's uh, well, I to think do so. while I'm at work because I yeah. don't want you to do it to me. Oh, really? I would never do that to you, I don't think. Uh, I, yeah, I, right. I always say, I always say, hey, listen, if you have time. Yeah, that's your way of telling me you need me if, to do if, something. If you got, hey, listen, if, if that's what's trouble, if you could, I mean, you don't have to. But Ladies, if, if your man if says you could, that to you, that's his way of being I'm, like, I'm just saying, it. listen, I would, I would do it for you. That's, you know, see, if, see, that's the guilt part. I would do it for I, you. If I had no legs and I was blindfolded, I would do it for you in a heartbeat, honey. But I'm just saying, if you had no so much trouble, could you please run by the store and pick me up? Whatever. Exactly. Like go way out of my way. Last night, you you were so see you do this notoriously. It's like at the worst times too. Last night, it's eleven thirty PM. 
And I'm like winding down, like super tired, getting very sleepy. And you're, maybe it was 10 p.m., but you were like standing at the freezer, like getting yourself some ice cream. And you're like, oh, hey, can you please sew up my shorts for me right now? I'm like, Chris, are you kidding me? I didn't say right you, now. I said sometimes. Oh, no, no. You said, can you, you said, can you sew up my shorts right now? I didn't say the words right now. Oh, yeah, you did. I would never do that. Yes, you did. 100%. I wouldn't say right now is very second, especially at like that late Oh, night. yes, you did. And I said, well, not right now, Chris. Like, I we're just like relaxing. I don't have my sewing stuff out. And you're like, fine, fine, whatever. I said, fine, fine. fine. Well, I'll, take it, I'll take it to the uh, sweatshop down the street. And, <laughs> and they can uh, sew it. <laughs> Whatever. This is what I deal with, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to my world. And this is the reason why I don't feel that I have permission to rest while you are at work. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. I literally do oh, like stay gosh. up until like 1 a.m. every morning. I don't know. I feel bad. That I'm up that late? Yes. I feel like you, know, uh, you should suffer it, It's weird together. that you say that because I feel the same way too. When you work weddings and I'm home, the nights you're doing wedding stuff, I try to stay up for you too. You do. And uh, sometimes I don't make it, but I do try to stay up for you, you know? And I'll no, get, you I'll never get, make it. Because <laughs> I'm old. But and then I'll get home. I'll be like driving home and be like, honey, I'm so tired. Can you help me unload the car when I get home? And you're like, tonight? <laughs> really? Boxes like, and boxes of stuff. like, what? It's like asking like, someone to move. Like, what is it that you need my help with? And I'm like, thanks. Thank you so much for being so attentive. Well, I am working on it and being You are uh, working on it. I, I'm working on being very helpful and stuff. And and it's um it's weird because for many years I've operated as a solo lonely guy, you know, a lone lone wolf as it will. You know, um you know, no, bachelor, you bachelor Patsy. No, you haven't. And um I mean so for many years of my life, which means BK before Christine. Oh my God. Okay. And I, for the first time ever, have somebody to take care of and someone that we, I can count on and work together with as a team. Okay. And I'm not used to that, you know? Okay. See? Stop the story. Rewind. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris does this all the time. He, when he wants to have, when he wants to evoke the violins, the pity on me, he goes into, you know, I, I was a bachelor for many, many years. When I do the timeline of Chris's relationship history, there's a blip of like maybe two week period of time, except for right before we started dating. You were like perpetual relationship guy for like seven years. Hey, what can I say? The ladies love me. I don't know. You know? I know. So, <laughs> mister, I was single for many, many years. Well, still, even if you're in a relationship with somebody, you're still single. I mean, still, you're still like married. What? You're not married. <laughs> Even if you were in a, did I just hear that? Even if you're in a relationship with someone, you're still single. What? I think you're still you're like married. You're not married. You're not like living together. You're like you know dating or whatever. You're still not a bachelor. Well, okay. Hey, don't dig yourself out of this hole. Just admit it. Well, I did buy my house by myself. The other house. You did. That's right. Single guy. You were in a relationship with somebody. When I bought the house, no, I wasn't. Oh, I'm sorry. That was the two weeks that you were off again. <laughs> yes. No, that was the during the escrow. <laughs> <laughs> the on again, off again relationship you had. Oh, anyways, this is fun today. I'm I'm having fun joking around with you. And you know, it's been it has been a while that we have, I mean, a couple of weeks since we've been able to podcast because we have had a lot of stuff happening in our life. So you know, if you're just catching up, maybe you um, haven't listened to a couple of episodes and you just got right back in the swing of things. Uh, we 
have been taking, we've, we've been prioritizing our family and our relationship, which means that we don't always podcast on a weekly basis. However, we're still packing in some great content for you all. Right, Chris? Fan, absolutely tastic, baby. And speaking of packing in great content, this week we have another fantastic guest. He's going to be talking with us about his own journey through grief. And we're going to be back with him right after this. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is Podcasting Made Easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podtasticaudio.com slash easy. And welcome back, everybody. Today, we have another fantastic VIP guest. He is an author and a speaker. We're really excited to have him on the show. Welcome to the show, Clint Hatton. I love that. That is that is quite the introduction. And I tell you what, I, I need that recording so that I can cheer myself on every now and then. Hey, Clint. Well, you know, we bring him in here just for you. We're stopping by. Thank you. Thank you for showing up today, man. We appreciate this. Uh, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I've listened to you guys, and I know we're going to have some fun and talk about some great stuff. Absolutely. Now, Clint, where in the world are you joining us from today? I am joining you guys from McKinney, Texas. So if you're not familiar with where that is, we're a suburb of Dallas. And today it's actually, we had a, we had a, a cold front come in. So no. it's, it's freezing today. It's about 95. Well, <laughs> you, guys, you guys get your uh, jackets on and get your hoodies on. Oh, you know, totally. You guys chopping firewood in the backyard and putting the it's, fireplace it, on. It's really rough, man. No, we've, we seriously, I don't know how much, I know you guys are in San Diego, so I'm fairly jealous of that right this minute, but with this uh, summer has been brutally hot. You and uh, we, Arizona, I heard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I actually have a lot of friends out in that area and uh, it's just been smoking hot. So no joke today, it's only mid nineties and it actually feels cool, which is a weird sensation. Well, down here, we live in the East County of San Diego County and it gets pretty hot, but definitely not Texas hot, but we do have, it's more like a mountain heat. So it's like direct sun, super hot, no humidity. And um, I mean, we've been just under the triple digit mark for the last couple of days, but nowhere like what you all have been experiencing. Right. And I don't know if you guys would even know this because I don't think I put in any of my information, but I'm actually from California. I was born and raised in what's now called Santa Clarita. Oh, and then, magic and then I actually, that, that was my first summer job at 16. That's exactly no right. Totally. Well, what was your job at uh, Magic Mountain? The games area. Yeah, uh, I was the guy trying to get you to keep throwing me $1 bills for that ring. You're never going to get around that box yeah, with the big handle attached to it. Yeah. Do you ever like throw it over there and make it look super easy for the sucker kid who goes there and drops his whole allowance? You're like, look at I, me. <laughs> you want the inside track in there? Yes. I'll tell you the real scoop about that. There, there really was for a lot of different games, a trick. And by that, I don't mean deceptive. I mean, if you knew exactly where to put something or throw something, it would work every time. But the funniest was, you know, you know, the, uh, 
I don't even know what they call it. I can't remember today, but the big hammer and you hit the, uh, you hit the big pad and then the metal thing goes up and you're trying to ring the bell. I don't even remember what yeah, we called it. Yeah. They had, it's supposed to require strength, right? And it, oh, it was so funny, man. I would get, have guys that would show up that outweighed me by a hundred pounds and they just couldn't ring it, couldn't ring it. And you know, we did it every day. I literally, I probably weighed 140 pounds. I could ring it with one hand. No way. And it would drive. Yeah. Cause there was a specific spot that if you consistently hit it, it was going to ring every time. Cause it was all about leverage. It really wasn't that much about power, but people think it is. So it was so funny. I'd have guys throwing down 20, 40, 60 bucks trying to ring that bell. Cause they've got their girlfriend with them and I could oh, do it with yeah. one hand and I could do it with one hand. And I, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. Oh, now I've always wondered, and this is something that Chris has told me, the basketball hoop game. Yes. He says that it's not really round, that it's slightly like an oval. <laughs> I'm he's, not quite he's sure. He's probably right. I mean, this has been a long minute, man. I was 16, so you know, it's been it's been a while. I don't know, but you know what? I I would not be surprised if that were the case. Uh, we weren't trained that or showed that, but you might be right, Chris. Well, the one at the uh, San Diego County Fair we go to every year, they got the full-on like fair section with all those carnival giz- you know, things and stuff like yeah. that. Instead yeah. of using uh, this year, they, instead of using actual cash, they had like this credit card debit card system they have, where you load credits on a card, and oh each one of those gosh. vendors, yeah, they had like a little handheld device where it kept track of your credits and all that kind of stuff. So I had the credits on a card for the kids to use and they burned through those so quickly <laughs> because yeah. each of those like vendors was like five or six credits and you only had like 50 credits or whatever. So do the math. It's like four tries and you're done. But, uh, but yeah, that's where they have the basketball hoops that are like, they, from a looking straight on it, it looks like a normal basketball hoop. Oh, I can make that shot. Yeah. No problem. But as you walk around the side of it, it's when you notice that the actual hoop itself is squished to like an oval shape. And then the balls themselves are like overly inflated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure on that. Well, I'd like to think that Six Flags was on the up and up a little bit more than maybe a shady sideshow, but you know, who knows? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, well, our kids love to definitely drop all of their money in that area and we try and steer them around. I am a personal fan of the like squirt gun games, the ones where you yeah, have to like squirt yeah. it into a hole, but you have to have it like a minimum of four players. And so the way we rig it is we're <laughs> a family of five. And so if it's like minimum of three players, we'll wait. We'll outweigh anybody else that's standing there and we'll go just the three of us. So we're guaranteed that somebody's going to win. And it's genius. It, it is. Thank you. Because it's normally like one of the kids really wants one of the prizes. And so it's like a team approach to it. We're like, okay, we're all going to do this, but we're doing this for the purpose of winning the prize for, you know, whatever kid it is. And then it never fails that at the very last second, right when they're like, okay, we're getting started. Somebody will slide <laughs> right in. Yeah. Right. And we, we all three will look at them like, you didn't just do that. <laughs> and it's usually the ringer, right? I the one know. who's done this thing a hundred times, right? Totally, totally. Although I will say, so I took um, our oldest after he, he just graduated from high school in June and he and I went to Vegas and we went to Circus Circus and I was playing one of those games by myself and it was like, um, 
it was, it, it wasn't like the squirt gun one, but it was one where you only needed one player and you had to like roll and like knock down milk, milk cartons or something like that random. Yeah. Yeah. And I just did it and the, the worker wasn't even paying attention. And I was like, um, I think I just won the top prize. And she looked and she was like, oh my gosh, you did. And I walked out with a longboard skateboard for my kid. Oh, and he wow. Was like, That's nice. He's like, dude, mom. You, how much did that cost? And I was like, three bucks. <laughs> so, you know, Is there's that times. where that thing came from? I see, yeah. it, I see it in the garage. I didn't know where it came from. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yeah, that's a nice prize. Yeah. I don't think we ever had anything that was probably valued over about 350 Right. Yes. You, <laughs> you know, know, even the biggest stuffed animals weren't uh, exactly worth much. Yeah, they definitely weren't like the kind that you'd get a Build-A-Bear. <laughs> so, no. So, Clint, what made you leave beautiful California and go out to uh, Texas? Oh, geez. Yeah, that requires a wider um, glance at my story. So I, I grew up in Santa Clarita, but then when I was about 19, I'd recovered from a major knee surgery and decided I want to pursue junior college football and try and get a full ride to a bigger school. So I actually moved to Redding, California, which you guys may be familiar with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Way up north. And so I was up there and Short version is my second year up there, I ended up blowing out my knee again. And oh man, next thing you know, I was, I got into the car business and started working. And next 14 years later, I was still in Reading. But ultimately, what happened for me was I ended up, I ended up in a divorce. That's, that's part of the story too. I got married and we, we made it about five years and, you know, total, total train wreck. You know, neither one of us were, uh, well, I'll just stick with me. I was not a healthy person. You know, I had a lot of baggage, a lot of, a lot of skeletons in my closet and certainly was not the the husband that, you know, I should have been. And were so you, we ended up, Were you younger when you got married, you think? Uh, no. Because usually, <laughs> nice usually down, thank well, you for trying, Chris. Thank well, you for trying I, to I, give I, me an out. Yeah. Well, I'm saying usually when you are younger, like I noticed with the younger marriages, like get married right out of high sure. school, you know, sure. like you don't yeah. know nothing, but you think you know everything, but you don't know nothing sure. about life. And then life really throws a wrench at you. And then, you well, know. I don't know. I think divorce doesn't discriminate. I think if you go in and you have hurts, habits, and hangups that you haven't really dealt with, that no matter your age, it's going to be toxic to the relationship. So, but go on. That's Clint. true. You were saying yeah, that you, well, you no, came that, in with stuff. Yeah, no, that's totally true. Because you know, during that season, I after after I blown out my knee and got into the car business, I had abused drug and alcohol. You know, going back to when I was probably thirteen years old. Sports was really the only reason why I didn't go completely off the deep end. So it wasn't like abusing drugs and alcohol was a new thing. But by the time I got in the car business in my early 20s, that's where I was actually introduced to meth. Oh, wow. And so I ended up, you know, almost nine years, not every day. You know, I wasn't the type of person that you necessarily think of when you think of somebody that does meth a lot. Um, but, you know, it's it's funny because there's there's a lot of people that are professionals that are addicted to meth. They're just not the picture boy, you know, of that particular right. addiction. So, so, you know, th that was during my meth years and all that. And, and, you know, she partied too, and we both had a lot of hurts and things in the past. So, you know, I think we we're mid twenties when we got married, we weren't, you know, old, but we weren't young either. And ultimately it just, it was a complete disaster. But what ended up happening was I was not a religious person. You know, I, I, been to church a couple of times when I was a kid, but that was about it. I wasn't raised in church or anything like that. And I had some friends that invited me to a church in Reading that they really loved. And I decided finally one time to give in and 
And I really had a really powerful experience that day. And that's when, for me, I decided to become a person of faith. I gave my life to God and and uh, started to turn my life around. Well, my now ex-wife, of course, wasn't a big fan of that. Um, she wasn't too thrilled with that. I felt like pretty early on that I was being called into ministry, to being in full-time ministry of some mm-hmm. kind. And it just wasn't really a lifestyle that she was looking for. So we actually made it about nine months. And then she finally <laughs> delivered papers to me on December 23rd. I'll never forget. It was two days before Christmas. And uh, we had a, a hit, crazy guys. I mean, we fought like you can't imagine. I mean, ugly fights. Right. And it was really interesting. The day she she you know presented the papers to me, it actually came on the heels of a vacation that we'd went on with a group of group of friends that was probably our best week in five years, you know? So the timing was odd. And I remember getting so mad in my, in my head, you know, I was just, I was just getting so angry. And then I really felt like, and, and for me, I did feel like it was God speaking to me, but it wasn't like this audible thing or anything like that. I just sensed this, why are you so angry? And we ended up sitting and talking for probably two, three hours straight, totally calm, being really vulnerable mm-hmm. with just how we felt about our relationship, where we both wanted to go with our lives. And we ended up just coming to this amicable decision that, you know what, it's just not working for us. And so we, we didn't even hire a lawyer. We hired a par- paralegal, you know, divide the house to everything we need to do. It was actually pretty simple and pretty easy considering the volatility of, you know, what had been our marriage. And then we both moved on. And so ultimately, and that's going to lead us back to <laughs> why we went on this little rabbit trail here. Uh, ultimately, after that experience, I, I knew I was now, as Southwest Airlines like to say, free to move about the country. <laughs> and I wanted to change, you know, I really wanted to change. And so I had prayed about a few different places. I had friends in LA still. I had friends in the Bay Area. And, uh, you know, thought about moving there, but there was just something about Dallas. I'd never even been here before. Uh, I didn't have a job, nothing awaiting me. And ultimately that's where I felt like I was supposed to go. And that's ultimately what led me to Dallas. Was it kind of like, uh, you were just looking at places on the map and you just felt like Dallas (laughs) a good fit of all the places. I mean, I mean, did they, they, no, Dallas in general, it's a fairly large city. I'm sure there's opportunity for almost anything you wanted to do. You probably could find it there. Uh, I would think rent is probably cheaper there than say LA. So, you know, you probably, it's probably a safe bet, you know, weather's, I mean, other than being 150 degrees, weather's right. probably okay, you know? So it's probably a fair, a fair place to really start a new life, I would think. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's a great question because, you know, there are people that do that, right? They'll get out a map and I'm done and just throw a dart and okay, but you know, Sioux City, Iowa. That's where I'm moving, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And so, so, but for me, you know, it wasn't quite like that. There was a couple of friends that I had, uh, including the ones that had invited me to actually come to church when that happened, that were involved. We were all involved in a network marketing company at the time, a nutritional company. And they had Dallas on the map because they really felt like it was very centrally located to help blow that business up. Oh, that makes sense. And so that, yeah, so that's actually how Dallas as a city came onto the radar. And the the funny thing about that is ultimately when I moved here, it didn't take me long at all. And I really wanted nothing to do with the business anymore. So (laughs) they actually did come here and and 
they did the business for about two years and they all actually live in Northern California again. They all moved back, but I, I ended up staying and, and ultimately that's when I got into ministry and ultimately becoming a pastor and also how I ended up meeting my uh, current bride, which we've been married a little over 20 years. Well, it's interesting the circumstances that God uses in our life to be able yeah. to move us out of our comfort zone. And yeah. Chris and I've talked about this a lot is after my first marriage ended and I needed to get a fresh start. It was like, where in the state of California could I move that was the furthest possible place away from what my current location was without actually crossing state lines. And so, you know, no matter what it is that leads you to a specific place, you know, it's the, what happens once you get there. And especially after divorce, that can be a really dark time when you thought that your life was going to look and feel a certain way. And now you're staring in the mirror and you're like, okay, here's my new reality. So many people like to, you know, you watch Hallmark channel or whatever, and you see, you know, the person goes through their, you know, two days of sitting on the couch and eating ice cream and then (laughs) brushes themselves off of the crumbs. And now they have this genius idea of this multi-million dollar company and their life turns around in like two days. And don't forget they met the dream guy uh, at at the cute meet at the coffee shop. But that happens as, you know, because they're always (laughs) like the the patent lawyer or something like that. But- Uh, for yeah. your journey, I know you yeah. gave us like the Reader's Digest version. So right. you yeah. find yourself in Dallas. You yeah. have this newly found faith, which sounds like it gave you a lot of hope. You Absolutely. feel this calling to go into ministry, but still you're now, you know, at whatever certain age you're at, single, starting over with a few friends around you. What was that phase of life like for you? Yeah. Well, that's, that's a great observation, what you just said. And and obviously you've had the personal experience, so you can really relate to it. When I came here, I really did, even though I had the hope, because what you just described is very accurate. I had a lot of hope. Uh, I was very excited about being here on many levels, but that doesn't overcome immediately, you know, the, the pain and even the shame over a divorce. You know, my parents ultimately ended up married over 65 years. Wow. And so, you know, at that stage of my life, they had been married, you know, what, 40 of it. So divorce wasn't something that I had experienced within my own family. Uh, Now, of course, I had friends that that went through that, but it was just something that I never imagined. You know, nobody does. Nobody, Nobody gets married thinking, okay, I'm so excited about this. I do. And let's see, when are we going to get divorced? I mean, nobody does that, right? Well, it's like you go to a job interview, you get hired the first day, you think, when am I going to get fired? Right. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think for me, you know, I I definitely was dealing with some of the shame and just disappointment that it didn't work out, you know? And so what happened for me was for about the first two years, I, I really felt strongly like God was telling me I was going to get another chance. And, and I didn't mention we did not have children. So mm-hmm. that, that was not a part of this equation. And I, you know, I wanted to be a dad someday. I, I wanted to be married again. And so I really felt like that opportunity was going to come. But I also at that point, you know, recognized that I was not in any position, you know, to be the kind of husband that I wanted to be. And so I, I started reading books um, I would even go to, you know, sometimes church would do a, a workshop for married people 
and I'd listen in, right? Even though I was single because I knew, oh, so what? Yeah, I've been married. <laughs> so what? That experience didn't teach me how to do it right. So I know nothing, you know? And I, and I like to say I became a student of, you know, what I thought it would look like to be a really healthy, you know, good husband in a, in a healthy relationship and, and ultimately a good dad as well. So I spent two years doing that. Didn't date, you know, um, really even for a lot of that, I was friendly. I would, you know, talk to people and occasionally go out to lunch or dinner with a group of people. But I spent a lot of time on my own during those two years. And then by the time, you know, I met who ended up becoming my bride and that's a whole other story guys. And I'm just warning you in advance. Let's not talk about that one too much unless you want to do part two. Cause it's, <laughs> it's, it in and of itself is a very involved story. And I've done full podcast just on, just on our story, but you know, ultimately I ended up meeting uh, my current bride and we set out on a new journey and by then, you know, I felt confident that I was in a good place. I was healthy. My, you know, my thought life was, was healthy and, and those things. Well, so you said something, Clint, that it's just very much piqued my curiosity. Let me give a little bit of backstory. So a little bit of my backstory is I, I am a wedding planner. And so I work with a lot of couples at yeah. various stages of life and experiences. And my observation is... There's so much preparation that goes into the the ceremony and the party and the yes. reception. And even yes. on, I notice on the bride's part, there's a significant amount of like preparing herself to be a wife. And what I don't observe, and it, it's just because I mostly work with the, the ladies as they're, you know, the leads typically in the planning. I don't always see the yeah. men doing the work, quote unquote, of like becoming, I, again, air quotes, husband material. And so when you were saying you were spending time trying to, you know, figure out what kind of husband right. you wanted to be, what kind of partner, for guys that are listening right now, maybe they're married or maybe they're, you know, single and looking to be in, the, you know, a a married kind of situation. What did that actually look like? Because I think some guys just think, well, I need to be financially stable as protector provider. Like I need to have a good job. I need to be able to put a roof over her head, but like on a deeper level, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, what kind of steps should a guy be going through to get themselves to a place to actually help lead a household? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I think the way I would have to try and answer that question is, you know, I was 30, what, 33-ish, I think, when we, yeah, 33, when we got married the second, when I got married the second time. My wife had never been married, by the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and she's also 11 years older, so I'll, or younger. I'm sorry, I'll throw that in there too. Um, the process that I went through was very self-guided. But I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that, you know, I was a little bit older, I was mature. Um, and then I had had such a bad experience. And again, more than anything, wanted to be a different person mm -hmm. than, than who I was before. That uh, what I did was very self-guided. So I did, I, I read a lot of books. I would talk to people, you know, if I, if I, 
saw a couple, for example, at church or wherever, you know, maybe it was at work or whatever that appeared to have a really great relationship, you know, I would ask questions, you know, so I would not really interview is probably too strong of a term, but I would talk to people, you know, that look like, like anything, you know, we talk about that when you talk about building a business or anything else, mm-hmm. you know, find someone that's successful and find out what they do. And that's what I did. And so I want to reiterate what you said though, because what you said is so dead on. Most people go into a marriage and most of their focus in those early days leading into the day they say, I do is on the event, the ceremony, just like you said. Uh, and then you can splash in the honeymoon, right? If they can afford to go somewhere. Oh, the, the best so, part of, the, of getting married. Yeah. You ask, my, ask me, well, man. The guy's thinking that. The guy's thinking that. We all know why, right? Yes. <laughs> he's, he's ready to go. And especially if they're, you know, coming from a, a religious standpoint where maybe, you know, they did not have premarital sex. They're ready to go. That's just the blunt truth, you know? They, they, uh, they're ready to go <laughs> perform their marital duties, right? right? In, in the name the of God, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. So those are the things they're focused on. And it can be a, you know, a really porous foundation. You know, one of the things that I've done for years, my wife and I have done is we were involved in marriage ministry or, or marriage coaching for almost 20 years. And one of the things that we did during those days where we would put together teams and, you know, put together curriculum and stuff like that is we tried to help the couple focus. And typically it would take about anywhere between 12 to 18 weeks to go through one of our courses. And the premise of it was, is that you're not preparing for an event. You're preparing for a marriage. And so what that meant was we would, we would have them fill out different types of uh, questionnaires and and questions about their family, their upbringing, uh, what were their expectations with who was going to have certain roles, like just even granular down to, okay, who's going to take out the trash? Who's going to iron the shirt? You know, all those things. And, and with sex, you know, how often do you think you should have sex? How often do you want to have sex? All those things. Because they typically would not even talk about those things. Right. And they think just because they get along, <laughs> that that's enough of the secret sauce and they just don't know, you know, they're, they're not experienced and, and it's, and it's romantic and, and you should enjoy all those things. That's, that's all good. But at the end of the day, the marriage is work. Marriage is a major commitment and it's work. And, you know, I am very blessed. We have an amazing marriage. It's better today than, than it was 20 years ago, but that didn't happen by accident and it didn't happen by osmosis. It happened because we have a lot of tough conversations. We talk about things that sometimes we don't want to talk about and, and we deal with things head on. And, and those are all things that if you don't have some form of a basis of that before you say, I do, then it's going to be tough. It doesn't mean you can't make it. It doesn't mean you won't have a great marriage, but you're going to struggle more than you need to. Yeah, that's you know such important truth right there. And you know, like I was saying, I observe it all the time where people get caught up in the the Disneyland effect is what I like right. to refer to it as because the, you know, meeting your person and getting swept up in the romance can feel magical and, you know, dopamine gets dropped into your brain and you're, you know, yeah, so lovey-dovey right. and, you know, then all of that wears off. And when you hit your first bump in the road, it's like you look around and it's the, oh, wait, did I, did I make the wrong decision? You know, 
and then you hit something that's more than a bump in the road and it's catastrophic and you realize either you have a good foundation or it starts to crumble. And so when we look at your story, fast forward, skip over the meeting your wife part, you know, you have this, this work that you've been doing on yourself, you find a life partner and it's the right fit and you're equally matched. Um, and you, you're married and you have your first kids and you're going along and then tragedy hits with your little one when they're born with your wife not doing so well. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So what was that like? Well, I think to your point, I'll say first that just foundationally, the fact that we had really worked on our communication, even before we got engaged, I should point out, because we were engaged for nine months once we did get engaged. Prior to that, we were we were friends for, you know, probably a year, year and a half. And so we we practiced communication. And then once we got engaged, we practiced communication. By that mean, uh, what I mean is, you know, having conversations about all kinds of things. Uh, one of the one of the biggest train wrecks I think I've seen over and over again, and people end up in divorce, is they think, well, we never argue. So that's why our relationship is so great. And anytime I hear that, you guys, I'm always a little, <laughs> a little cautious mm-hmm. because more often than not, the reason why they never argue is because they never talk about anything significant. Right. And oh, then yeah, when, that makes sense. That's exactly right. And then when something big does hit, to your point, Christine, uh, they don't, they don't even know what to do and they just implode, you know? So, so to your point, we had that foundation, which would ultimately end up being incredibly critical for, uh, and again, our, our story, there's some complications to it. And I'm, I'm trying to keep us on task here. By the time we got engaged, there was a, a period of time where we were not on the friendly side of things, not enemies, but we just were not, we weren't dating. We weren't really talking. And that had to do with the fact that my wife had actually went on a trip on a vacation, uh, had a little fling in another country and ended up pregnant. Oh, wow. So, so my oldest son, Gabriel, who I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, uh, was not my biological son, but from the moment we got engaged, you know, he was only about, well, he was 16 months when we got married. So he was what, six months old, something like mm-hmm. that, um, give or take, when right. when we got engaged. So I became dad pretty quickly, but that's how we began. And so I, when I got married to Amaryllis, I became a husband and a father instantly all at once, you know? Right. And so all those things were mixed in, but we had this foundation of having worked through some things, <laughs> including this pregnancy, which again, I know that's a tempting topic, but it's it's a pretty layered story. Right. But ultimately we worked through all that and came to the conclusion that we were the right partner for one another. And that especially once Gabriel was born, that I was the right dad for him as well. Because for her, rightfully so, uh, if even if I seemed right for her, but I didn't seem fit to be a dad, that's a deal killer, right? And so, right. Uh, so we knew, you know, we knew by the time we got engaged that this is this was right. This is where we need to go. And I was excited to be a father. And so that was our first big hurdle. And then, you know, a couple of years went by and we decided that we wanted to have, you know, a child together. And that's when we had a miscarriage, which 
I, my heart goes out to our listeners right now because there's so many, okay. so many that have, have suffered that kind of a loss in some cases, you know, more than once. And so it's, it's really hard. It's a difficult thing. And, and so we've been through some things, we talked through some things. And so we made it through that. I want, I was going to say fairly easily. I don't mean the emotions of losing the child. I mean, just being together and helping right. each other, you know, grieve, grieve that situation. And then, uh, we were given advice by, by a doctor that we should wait at least six months before we tried again. And that had to do with, we lost the baby in the 12th week and they had some ideas of what they thought might've went wrong. Um, so their advice was wait six months and we, we talked and we prayed about it. We felt like, no, that's not for us. We're just gonna, you know, we didn't, we didn't rehire the, the, uh, the goalie, right? We right. just didn't. We just didn't get back on birth control, and decided we would just see what happened. And we ended up pregnant less than thirty days later. Wow! Wow! And of course, that. that was a little scary. You know, I'm being very candid. That was a little scary when we started creeping up on that twelve week, thirteen week spot. You know, um, your human nature. You know, even if you're full of full of faith and hope, it's still going to get challenged. Like, oh gosh, you know, could this happen again? And and of course, this time it didn't. And we went full term with our middle son, Joel, but that's, that's when <laughs> we, we thought, all right, we made it. We're good now, you know? And she's not, cause she had a pregnancy disease. I, I'm sorry. I need to point that out. When she had our oldest Gabriel, uh, she had a pregnancy disease called preeclampsia. And so oh, yeah, he was super serious. Yeah, yeah. So he was born uh, seven weeks early at three pounds, 12 ounces. So he was a preemie. So when we had Joel, we got through, you know, the scary stage of, okay, we didn't have a miscarriage. Thank God for that. And we got all the way there and we get to the hospital and she got stuck and she's better at the numbers than I, and I can't remember if it was two centimeters or what, but you know, she had started going to labor and just got stuck and tried for like 12 hours. Oh, wow. And nothing was moving. And so ultimately they just said, listen, you know, you you, you probably just need to go ahead and do a C-section because you're getting stressed. The baby's getting stressed. And so we agreed. So, okay, fine and dandy. But then they went to uh, do the epidural and it wouldn't take. Oh my goodness. She could, they, you know, they were, they were like, okay, we're getting ready to roll you in. Can you feel this? And she's like, yes, you know, I can feel that. And so ultimately they were able to work around it and finally get the anesthesia to work. Had Joel all excited. I go into the room with the nurse, you know, the whole, you know, movie scene, they're cleaning him up and handing him to me. And, you know, I'm like, can't be any more excited. And then all of a sudden a nurse came into the room where I was with Joel and the other nurse and said, we need your help. And they rushed me off to the waiting room that Amaryllis was in. And she was really struggling to come out of the anesthesia. So, you know, that went on for a few hours and we had some very scary moments. You know, they, they basically had me with her just to keep, keep talking to her and keep her occupied and not let her go to sleep. And, you know, people are more likely to do that with someone they actually know as opposed to their doctor. So that's right. why they pull, pulled me into it. And so, you know, very scary situation again. And, and so ultimately after that, we were done guys, we were done, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. that's it. Time out, no more babies. It's over. And, in that uh, in that moment, Clint, because yeah. you've you've talked about a couple of challenging situations, and you know, talking about your journey, not necessarily your wife's, but you've gone through this 
previous divorce, you've relocated, you're starting your life over, you've met your person, you went through some challenges in dating, um, you get married and your husband and dad, and now you're going through this, you know, on the verge of potentially losing your wife. That's what it feels like in that moment. And you've talked about being a man of faith. Did you at any point in time stop and be like, all right, God, like I promised to follow you. And I didn't think that all this was going to be in my path. Like maybe it's easier if I just don't like, would my life be better if I just don't follow this path of faith? Like, did you have a crisis of faith at any point in time in this journey? That's a really fair question. And I think a, a very honest question. And I, up to that point, no, but I'm, I'll tell you partly why. The situation with Joel, that all happened so fast. I mean, we, we were just in the room, right, thinking she was going to give normal birth. And then one thing led to another. And it was just a train that left the station, you know. So I really feel like at that time, I didn't have time to think that way. You know, we just, <laughs> we just did what the doctors were, or I did what the doctors were telling me to do. And I, of course, I was praying to myself you know, over the situation. But I didn't really feel that way at that point in time. Now, you know, I I half joked a second ago that we were done and we were, we were done for five years (laughs) until one day I saw her picking up other babies, which that wasn't unusual, but she was holding on to them just a little bit longer than I was comfortable with. Right, because you, well, could did you just guys see go it. to the uh, baby zoo of the baby petting zoo or something? Where did you, <laughs> yeah. you, yeah. you find all these babies Church laying around? Nursery, AKA well, that, yeah, that's the thing. You know, we we have been a part of fairly large churches, and there's so there's a lot of babies. Right, right. So a lot of babies. Yeah. I, I don't see so many babies that often in my line of work, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, totally. That's why. Yeah, absolutely. And and so ultimately, you know, clearly we made the decision to, to try again. And at that point, you guys, you know, we had two boys who were like, Hey, we'll try for the girl. Now I still don't know what that looks like or what that means. <laughs> right. Cause you know, we pretty much went about things the way we did the first two times, but yep. uh, ultimately we're just like, yeah, it'd be fun to have a girl. And, and no, it didn't happen. But what, what happened that was really crazy was we were three months into it. And, or excuse me, I'm, I apologize, six months, six months into the pregnancy. And up to this point, things had gone pretty well and we were feeling really good about it. And uh, we, we literally had lived in Washington state by now. We're actually uh, on staff at a church up in the Seattle, Washington area with some mentors of ours. And we hadn't moved yet from Louisiana, which is where we had been living. We had a home down there still. So I actually jumped on a plane one morning and everything seemed fine. And my purpose was to fly down to Louisiana and meet movers because we had finally given it. This was during the housing crisis, you know, mm-hmm. 07, 08, oh, this whole fun deal. fun times. Oh, yeah. Yeah. My, my, our stories tend to involve multiple layers. So that was going on and we just couldn't sell the house. Nothing in Southeast Louisiana was selling. So I was going down there with the purpose of being there for three days, meeting with the movers, getting everything packed up. Then I would fly back. And then ultimately when the movers showed up, we were going to move into our own place because at that point we'd been uh, renting a friend's home that just wasn't in it. And so I get on the plane, get all the way down there. You got to stop in Dallas on your way. So there's no direct flight. So by the time I get to Louisiana, it's about eight hours later. I call her, I'm leaving the airport. I'm in my rental car. And she said, things have really gone bad. 
Oh, wow. And to fast forward, her uh, preeclampsia ultimately is a, a pregnancy disease that involves high blood pressure. Right. Well, there's an escalation of that called HELP syndrome. Oh, yeah. And so that's when it goes to a whole other level. Well, we didn't know it yet at that part of the phone call, but that's what was happening. So she was already being driven to the first hospital where our doctor was that we had planned on giving delivery with and with a blood pressure that was 200 over a hundred something. Right. And I'm like, Oh my God, are you, are you, you can't be serious. And so she's got to get to the hospital. I'm like, okay, I, I'm not even to the house yet. Uh, I got to go to, <laughs> it's just reality. I got to go to Walmart to pick up some supplies. And I'm going to go to the house and I'll call you. Well, by the time I call, call her, uh, the plans already shifted. They think they're going to have to deliver the baby that night, six months into it, three months early. Wow. She was at 20, 27 weeks. And, barely viable uh, at that, ver- that time. Barely viable, exactly. And and here I am in Louisiana, you know? And mm-hmm. so at that point, I just told her, okay, I'm just going to pack a few things tonight and I'll be on the first flight in the morning. And ultimately, that's what happened. So fortunately, what happens if you're familiar with you know that, premature of a, of a baby, they give them uh, steroid shots. Right. And that's really just to try and boost you their know, lungs. The, yeah. The lungs, the brain, that kind of thing as much as they can before they take the baby out. And so they actually bought us 48 hours. So I did get back in time for, you know, the, the delivery and all that, but then we gave birth to Liam, you know? And so here she is, it's 27 weeks. He was one pound, 14 ounces. Wow, that's crazy. And, you know, we go, so he and I are the ones who go into the, um, the NICU unit, which we're, that's the reason why they moved us. We were moved to a specialized regional NICU unit that was prepared to handle that kind of situation. Christine, that's when those questions started. Yeah. That was the first time where I'm like, excuse me, what the heck? You right. know, you've got to be kidding me. Why, why? Uh, I've, thought we were doing everything right. I thought that we would be protected from stuff like this, you know? So yeah, those, those questions definitely have come at different points of our life. And that's, that's really the first, what I would just call traumatic experience where it happened. Cause he was in the hospital for two and a half months. And especially early on the way they're hooked up and there's these bells that go off called Brady, uh, when, when they have what's called a Brady episode, which is basically when they're their lungs and their brain are not fully connected yet. And so the baby just doesn't remember to breathe. So they stop breathing. And so it's very scary, you know? And so that two and a half months was terrifying. And there was many moments where like, you know, you gotta be kidding me. And so when you're living in that space of constant worry, and I mean, at, at some point when you have a baby in the NICU and these episodes are happening, I mean, you have to live every day hoping that they're going to make it through and living with the sobering reality that there's a possibility that you might be coming home with empty arms. So when you're in that space, constantly toggling between this fear that's very real and, you know, wanting to hope, but not really having joy in the situation and then you find yourself on the other side of it because we know the story is Liam did make it through, correct? Right, right. That's exactly right. So how, what is life like after that? Because it feels like when you're in that space for several months, that becomes your new normal and that becomes your like 
coping mechanism of emotions where it's you live in fear and you just, it becomes, I wouldn't say a security blanket, but a familiar friend and the joy isn't as close. How do you go on living your life to where you actually get rid of that constant fear and are able to start embracing joy again? Yeah. Well, you know, for us, it it was really during that process, it was both, you know, it wasn't an either or for us during that particular, you know, especially those first two and a half months, you know, we had moments, you got to remember, you know, uh, Gabriel and Joel are eight and five. Mm -hmm. So there is something that I believe is true, especially when you're talking about, you know, a healthy family unit, unit that, when you've got to go through something traumatic together, uh, I, I do think, I'm not going to say it's easy, but I am going to say it's easier to try and find ways to hang on to hope and to have joy, you know, because because we need to keep their hope alive too. You know, what I didn't mention is this was also during the H1N1 virus. Mm-hmm. And so for the entire two and a half months, Amarillo and I were the only two people that were allowed to visit Liam at all. So his brothers didn't even get to see him until the day he was released, nor did any grandparent or uncle or anybody, you know? So, so there were definitely times, no question to your, to your point that, you know, we fought fear that we, you know, fought at times a feeling of hopelessness, like, you know, are are we really going to make it through this, you know, with, with him? Um, There's no question, but, but we also had each other and we also, you know, we had our, our prayer life, which, you know, and I'm, and for your listeners, I'm, I'm not trying to give anybody a religious answer. This was just truthfully how we function. You know, prayer did give us hope and did encourage our faith. And then we had a lot of people, a lot of people that we knew were praying for us. And so I will say for me, especially, you know, my life as a believer specifically, it was during that season that it was the first time that I felt like I had actually felt physically and emotionally the tangible evidence of people praying for you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, because a lot of people, they're even in the church, they'll say, oh, yeah, I'll pray for you, you know, and you don't even know if they do. You don't even know what that means. And you don't necessarily sense anything either, right? But during that season, we really felt carried at times with other people's prayers. And that's the only way I can explain it, you know? Right. Um, and so ultimately when we came out of that, you know, you come home with a baby. I know one of the, one of the shows that I listened to of your guys is you had a, um, a lady on, I'm, I apologize. I can't right. remember. She was the, yeah. the newborn nurse. healthcare nurse. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I'm sorry. I can't remember her name, but so I can relate to, you know, our side of that. And so when you come home, it's not like it's over, right? It's exciting for sure. But it's not like you're out of the woods yet. And so we had, again, some scary moments for a while, for you know a month or two. But eventually we found our rhythm as a family and we pushed through it. Now, you know, your, your commentary on you know, what it may have felt like and, and the battle between fear and joy and all that kind of thing uh, obviously would get tested in a, in a, far more challenging way years later. Mm-hmm. So let's go there, Clint. So you you bring home Liam and you, you our family starts to gel. You have your three yep. boys together. Um, and you'd mentioned that before that, that Gabriel was 
um, eight and then Joel was five and then you bring home Liam and you have your three boys and now you're starting to live that quote unquote happily ever after with, That's right. with yeah. your kids. And then you get knocked down less than 10 years later by some right. really difficult right. circumstances. Can you take us there to what happened? And um, as much as you're willing to share a little bit about what your family went through about yeah. seven, eight, nine years later. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I love the way you frame that. I think that was, you know, well said, you know, we did feel like once we got past that situation with Liam, that life was good. Right. I mean, we're, we were happy with what we were doing for a living. We were growing in that we were given, you know, greater responsibility. We had greater influence, you know, all those markers of things that, you know, show that your life is growing in the direction you want it to. And then, and we had, we had one blip on the radar about five years later where Amaryl's had a spiral fracture of her femur wakeboarding one day. And uh, the boys were still that, pretty late. I mean, she yeah. was wakeboarding. So she it was, was wakeboarding. like, it was fun. Reason, well, it was fun, but this was in a remote lake. Oh, okay. And, and yeah, her leg was about five times the size it should be in wow. about 30 seconds. And we had to, it took us almost ultimately what ended up being about four hours to get her to a hospital in Western Washington with the threat of her bleeding out. Wow. Because yeah, it, it was, because it was a spiral fracture of her yeah. femur. Um, yeah. So, and, and that's not going to compare to what, where we're going, but I want to interject that a little bit because, you know, we had five and a half months after she had the surgery and was recovering where she couldn't even put her foot on the ground. So she couldn't drive. She couldn't help around the house. She couldn't do anything. So as a family, again, with the boys, they had to do some things that they didn't have to do before. You know, they had to make some of their own food. They had to, you know, clean up the house in certain do ways. Their own laundry for once, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so there were some things less serious, if I could say it that way, that again, just continually kind of helped us grow as a family that I know ultimately would help us. But what ended up being clearly the most difficult thing that we have ever faced and, and you know, hopefully we'll ever have to face was our oldest boy, Gabriel. At about eight, he, he, <laughs> he went up in a little airplane with his uncle Danny and that was it. I mean, he, he became an aviation junkie on the spot. That was it. He knew he wanted to fly. And so, you know, being eight, we had plenty of time for that dream to turn in another direction, you know? Yeah. Usually so, it happens. They went, they oh, to, totally. I would be an astronaut. And next thing yeah. you know, they you know, they grew up working at Walmart, but yeah, uh, <laughs> I wanted to be a fire truck when I was five, not a fireman, a fire truck. So, you know, this could go, this could go in any direction. Right? You know, yeah, right, Transformers, right. we can still make it happen. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, you know, at eight, we're not thinking that much about it. But by the time he was uh, 14 years old, he still absolutely wanted to become a pilot. And in short, we had moved back to McKinney, Texas, where I told you I live now. We lived here before. And so we were back here in McKinney and our school system here, he had just started high school, has a four-year aviation program. That's amazing. As part of the track. Yeah. There's only a couple of places still in the country, I think, that have that particular um, you know, option. So he was able to start that. And then he joined a club that was called or is called Tango 31 Aero Club, which is at a little municipal airport about seven minutes from our house. And this club was put together by a guy that he's a, kind of a legend in the aviation industry, salty old pilot, great guy. 
but he started a club for teenagers for the sole purpose of he had to work so hard for everything. He was given nothing, had a pretty tough upbringing, and he just wanted to be able to provide an opportunity for kids that were interested in aviation to have a way because it's a very expensive Hobby. Yeah, I would think so. It sounds like yeah. a rich, rich man sport, really. Like that and yeah. yacht, yachting, I guess, too, if you're going to have a yacht, <laughs> yacht club. Yeah, that's probably, <laughs> that may be next level there. Yeah. But you're exactly right. You know, and, and at this point, you know, we're pastors still. So um, we're not exactly raking in a seven figure income, right? And so there was no way that we could afford to send him through flight school. But right. he joined this, he joined this club. And so to fast forward, by the time he was 16, what, what Kevin Lacey is the name of the gentleman who started this club, and he provided planes. Wow. And he, and he had relationships with instructors that donated their time. Literally, all the kids had to pay was, a, this is going to make you laugh or you're shocked, one or the other. 50 bucks a year to be a part of this club. Wow. Was that just for the paperwork to sign the uh, ink? <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think yeah, that's a great question, Chris. I think it's just because he wanted them to have to pay something, you know? Right. Because it was nothing. But, you know, even, even the fuel for when they started flying, we got it wholesale, you know? So, so all these doors, guys, just started opening left and right, you know? And we really believed this is favor, you know? As, as people of faith were like, this is favor. This is the favor of God, you know? And so 16 years old, he gets in a plane and he solos before he even has his driver's license. That's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Just incredible experiences. And so back to what you had said earlier, Christine, you know, man, at this stage, we're like, our lives are really going great. Look at what's happening. Even with Gabriel, he's got a dream to be a pilot, something we could never afford, or at least I shouldn't say never, but at this stage in life, could not afford for him to be able to do. And yet- Look at this. And he actually got his pilot's license at 17, which is the youngest you can be to get your actual pilot's license certificate. That's amazing. All- so before we go further, Clint, yeah, I have yeah, to yeah. pause yeah. the story sure. and I have to ask you. So you're looking around, your kid is thriving. He's you know surpassing these dreams that he held for himself. And like you're saying, everything's going great in your life. Did you have this nagging feeling of, waiting for the other shoe to drop or were you just embracing (laughs) like fully living into this, this idea that this is like, this is the way that life's going to be. And it's just, this is all of the good that God has for me and we're not going to struggle. Like, cause I think that's an important mindset to be able to, to get into is whether or not you did have like, in the back of your head, okay, something could happen. Or if you were completely, for lack of better terms, Pollyanna. Yeah, no, that's a tremendous question. I'm, I'm glad you asked that. You know, at that stage and where we're at in life, I can sincerely say that, and, I, and when I say we weren't looking for the shoe to drop, it wasn't like this prevailing thought. Now, to say as a parent, did we ever think of something that could go wrong with our kids? Absolutely. Every parent does, right? So it wasn't that we never thought of anything, but it wasn't really anything that we, you know, were looking over our shoulder or anything like that, thinking, okay, this is going too good. Surely something bad is going to happen. You know, it wasn't like that. And, and, even, and even with, in terms of fear of him flying, you know, I've said this many times and I, and I still believe it's true after four years, you know. 
I had more fear with him getting in a car. Mm-hmm. And, and part of that logic was just simply when Gabriel was flying, he was so locked in and he was very well trained, I should mention. So locked in. I mean, everything was about every little detail and checking everything on the aircraft before you got in. And, you know, even if he had a passenger, you know, this is not the time to talk to me. Just be quiet. I got to deal with stuff. You know, he was very focused. Now, put him in a car and he's 17 again. (laughs) You know, he's got the phone in one hand. He's got the music blaring. He's going 103 on our freeway here where you can go 75. You know, I mean, it was just a different thing. And so- at that point, no, it really seemed like, gosh, this really is Pollyanna for lack of a better way to say it myself. It's just, things are just awesome, you know? And, and then he, he, so he got the license and started just putting in the hours, which is what every pilot does, not age-wise, just new pilot. Anytime they get their certificate, whether they're 17 or 70, you know, you want to fly as many hours as you can. And he wanted to go commercial, so you need to get to 1,500. Uh, as soon as you can to be able to take that next step. So that's what he was doing. So life was just ordinary. Aviation and him flying was just a normal part of our life. So like most kids go out for baseball practice and your son's out, you know, at the municipal airport flying solo, literally just, you know, zooming around and getting his hours in and, hey dad, I'm home. Oh, hey son, how was it? You know, we're at 20,000 feet today. Like that's, that's yeah. not a normal conversation. No, no, that's, that's exactly right though. Yeah. Did he fly anywhere from like just up and back to the same location? Did he like fly to distances? Like I'm taking a trip to this location or that location. Oh yeah. No, he's done cross country. He had, he had oh, flown wow. to Wisconsin uh, from where we are uh, on two different occasions over the course of two years because the club would go to something called Oshkosh. It's an air show in mm-hmm. Oshkosh, Wisconsin. It's the biggest of its kind in the world. So he's he had flown there. He had flown several hours south, several hours north. Uh, the trip that we're going to get to eventually, he had made on a few different occasions because he had, I don't know, probably 20 friends that he graduated with that attended the University of Arkansas, which is where he was the day of the, the, day of the accident. So yeah, he did cross country, you know, that, and that's part of the training, Chris, that's a great question because part of the training is you have to start flying at night. You have to do cross country. There's certain markers. It's not just the hours. There's certain markers that you have to achieve to get that commercial license. So he was well on his way, you know, living, living his dream. And then on September 23rd of 2019, it was just an ordinary day. Exactly what you said a minute ago, Christine, literally. The last words I ever heard were him walking out the door, the garage, saying, hey, dad, I'll see you later. Uh, and so it's a normal day and he goes and it was about four o'clock. He wasn't flying yet. You know, they go and there's, there's a lot of pre-check and stuff. And about 8 p.m., well, we end up getting a call from Kevin, his mentor, who tracks all, all the kids who did fly. He tracks them on the iPad. And uh, all we knew is that he had disappeared off mm-hmm. the radar. And so, you know, guys, we could we could spend a lot of time going through detail, but um, I think we can just get right to the point. You know, it was a hellish night, um, truly our worst nightmare. There was a lot of misinformation, a lot of confusion. We were being told one thing from the search and rescue, uh, the sheriff's department that was in charge of that up in Arkansas. And uh, 
And then yet the news was covering the story too. And they were leaking information that the sheriff's department swore nobody should even have, including even at one point that there was a single fatality that they wouldn't confirm. Mm. And uh, ultimately, about 3.30 in the morning, we got the final word that Gabriel had indeed. And what what ultimately had happened, we'd find out it took almost two years to get the NTSB report, because that's how it works, um, that he had suffered from spatial disorientation, which a lot of your listeners, of course, no reason for them to know what that is, but almost all of us are familiar with the Kobe Bryant crash. Mm-hmm. And you know, he was in a multi-million dollar aircraft with a guy who had over 50,000 hours, and that's what happened to them. Spatial disorientation is, is you and he, he had an unexpected weather system come through a mountain range about 20 minutes out of his uh, return trip from Fayetteville and he lost his horizon and likely thought he was flying up and he was flying down and he flew into a, flew into a mountainside and lost his life. Oh gosh. It's it's so tragic. Like we both feel for your loss and it's, uh, that that was not that long ago. If you think about a couple of years ago. No, it's not. So you're facing this horrific moment and I don't want to dig into the immediate aftermath, but what comes to my mind is this happens in your life. And then you go through the holidays, your first holiday um, without your son. And then quite honestly, what happens is a few months later, our whole world shuts down and now your whole family is, you know, I'm, I'm assuming this isn't in your bio, but now you're all in space together. Right. The world has shut down. And when grief comes, we all know it comes in waves and in unexpected ways. And you can tend to keep yourself busy to a certain extent to not have to deal with it. But now your whole family is together and it's quiet and you can't go anywhere can you talk to us about what that was like for your family now processing through this extraordinary loss and yeah. being faced every day with the fifth member of your family not being there with you? Yeah, that's that's such a beautiful question because I think our experience, even though it's sound, well, I mean, it is, it is horrific, you know, if you're going to write a story, right? Um, but for us as a family, I actually think being locked in ended up being to our advantage ultimately, which may sound a little counterintuitive, but you know, when, uh, if, if you don't mind, I need to back up just a tiny bit for that that to make sense. You know, the day, the day of the, or day after the accident, um, Joel, my middle son was a freshman in high school when this happened and you know, his, his thing was football. So Gabriel was flying, Joel was football, Liam, it's martial arts. And we had to make a decision of whether or not he was going to go back to school that week because this was a Tuesday morning. And as a freshman, they play on Wednesdays. There was a, a homecoming game the next mm. day. And so I just I just asked Joel, we, we allowed – this is really important, guys. This is why I'm bringing it up for anybody that's maybe going through this now or been through it or, or may someday, God forbid. But we allowed our, our boys to be a part of the decision on how we were going to function and at what pace Mm -hmm. we didn't just tell them what they were going to do. And so with, with Joel, you know, we gave him the option, like, look, bud, you know, you don't have to go to school at least the rest of this week. We can get all your work. You know, you don't need to feel any pressure whatsoever. Um, But if you want to go, you know, we want to 
allow you to be able to make that decision. So take your time. And he didn't even hesitate. Uh, he said, no, I'm going to school. I'm going to school today because I am playing tomorrow and I'm playing for my brother. Mm. And so, you know, I'll admit that, you know, there was certainly some trepidation with that, you know, with him only being 14. Um, so, you know, we, we've, we did some things. I don't need to get into you know granular detail here, but I went with him. We met with staff and a grief counselor and all that stuff. We didn't just you know send him off and and not put some things in place in case he did have a hard time. But he made that decision to go, and the next day he ended up playing in that game, and it ended up being, I mean, truly, it's it's movie worthy. He was a running back. He um, he he could play, mm-hmm. and. <laughs> the very first play, there was about a hundred people extra that had showed up. Freshman games don't get much attention. I don't know if you got any kids or you've yeah. been around that, but there's, we're not talking, you know, this is not it's not varsity. It's not, yeah, it's not varsity. And even, even at a six, a school, which is where we are in Texas, not many people, but there was twice the crowd because there was over a hundred people that knew he had dedicated the game. And so they all showed up. Mm-hmm. And so first play, he literally takes a, a pitch to the right. Looks like there's no way he's going to turn the corner because the team has an angle on him, and he breaks it and scores on a 40 yard touchdown. Nice. Ends up having having an incredible game. And I know this sounds weird to some people the day after, you know, Gabriel passed away. But you know, after that, when we were talking outside the locker room, it was just one of those moments where it was an exercise in we're in a lot of pain but we have to live. Mm-hmm. And we had made a decision on the couch actually that Tuesday morning that we were in agreement as a family that the only way we could honor Gabriel was by living our lives the way he did, which is ultimately where this phrase Big Bull Brave came from, which is the title of my book and my company. But those were things that took place. And so then when COVID hit three months later, what happened with us specifically was, you know, like like most people, you know, the 30 days to I can't remember how they said it now. 30, 30 days to stop the spread stop or whatever the spread, it was. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we, we were all like, okay, fine, you know, let's do that. And so we did that. And then when the thing began to be prolonged, and guys, I'm not going to get political on this. Sure. This is not a political statement. I'm just answering your question, yeah. honestly. Um, once, once we got past that 30 days and then it seemed like just more and more fear just began, to, whatever side you're on, on it, whether things were being done the right way or the wrong way, it didn't matter. There was fear everywhere. And we just, we'd already suffered the greatest blow you're ever going to give us. We refused to be in fear. Mm-hmm. And so we, we, we literally, we had almost nothing in the backyard prior to that. So we ended up getting some furniture out back and we got a fire pit and we'd go out there at night and we'd do schmores and, you know, hang out. And my wife and I drink a glass of wine or whatever. And, you know, we played games, we hung out. Um, when there did come a point where we could do any kind of traveling at all, you know, for, fortunately we have family in Florida and Florida was one of the places you could go. We, we go on trips. I mean, we tried to make things as normal as we possibly could, even though clearly nothing was normal. Right. Right. right yeah. Um, but, but that was really the way we fought it as a family. And so, you know, we, we grieved together. We loved together. We cried together. We had, you know, some great memories that we built during that time. It was all of it. It was all of it. 
And it really gelled us even more so as a family. And, you know, nothing's perfect. And there's, there's even many more things that I could tell you, you know, in our conversation, two years later, we almost lost Joel to a horrific car accident, you know, literally shouldn't have walked away from it, should be dead. And he survived it. You know, there's been other hits, but it was during that lockdown season that I think the, uh, I think you were the one who said earlier, we gelled as a family. I think that solidified so rock solid that we even had this discussion not too long ago because my middle son, Joel, is now attending Oklahoma State University. He's a freshman. We just dropped him off about two weeks ago. That we feel like as a family, there's just really nothing you could throw at us that would tear us apart. Now, we're not inviting it. We don't want to experience anything beyond what we already have. I don't mean that at all. I don't mean that in a flippant way. But do you think maybe you're better better prepared for it today than you were? Without without question. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, without question. And I think that that's a really big point that you bring up and you'd alluded to your book, but this big, bold, brave lifestyle, it's something that it sounds like it's not just, let's write this down and, you know, put it in a book and pretend like it's what happened, but that you have, you and your family have had to make some intentional decisions of how to not make fear your closest friend and ally for a lack of better terms, but to like really figure out how to, how to face it. And, and so for our listeners out there that are going through what could be an insurmountable obstacle, whether it's a, a family tragedy, a financial loss, yet another setback, a broken relationship. I mean, fill in the blank of the hurts and disappointments that people are navigating through. What would you tell them that you've learned through this journey that may be a lesson from your book as well? There's always hope. There's always hope. And, you know, the reason why I wrote the book when I did, guys, Cause it was, I didn't start writing it until about two years after Gabriel passed away. So we were kind of on the tail end of the extreme part of COVID. You know, mm-hmm. the world was starting to return at least to the new, you know, semblance of normal, whatever that is. Right. So that's actually when I started to write the book because I didn't write the book as a grieving book. Uh, although there is some, you know, there's a lot in there. It's very raw. It's very real. There's a lot in there that's very helpful to people that, that maybe have suffered some sort of loss, but you know, during COVID so many people lost, right? Right. Whether it was losing a family member or they lost careers or businesses that they built and, you know, maybe they had just gotten started or maybe they'd had it for 30 years. I mean, there was just so much loss and so much fear that that's when I felt like I can write something that's not just going to help people overcome the gut punches of the losses that we all face at some point in life, but to do it in such a way that you don't, and I, I, I can't remember exactly how he said it. I wish I could, cause he, he just killed it in my mind on the whole fear thing, but just, I, I mentioned eating fear for breakfast. It's kind of a cutesy mm-hmm. you know, phrase, but how to, how to eat fear, you know, not let fear eat you and to have hope and to you know, continue to have dreams no matter what life is throwing at you. And and to me, you know, especially with the book itself, I didn't write about stuff 
that we don't live. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot, I'm in the personal development space now. There's an enormous amount of people out there who are saying all kinds of stuff on social media and they've never lived a lick of it. All they're doing is repeating stuff they've heard from someone else. Right. You know? We've lived it. And, and, and not perfectly, by the way, I'll make that very clear. We're not perfect at all. We've, we've had battles and, you know, had to recalibrate and start over and we messed this up and, you know, we're, we're like anybody. Yeah, but, but sometimes experience yeah. is like, it's be- the best life coach really, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. There's no question. So, so that's why I wrote it, you know, when I, when I did was to help people with that. And so ultimately to your question, you know, I, I sincerely believe not just because I have this faith, uh, although that's a very real thing for me, but because we've lived through it and we have suffered gut punches and yet we have learned that there are things that you can do in life. There are not, not, you know, systems or exact formulas, but there are principles that you can live by that if you'll make them your, your daily, like this is how we live life, then you can overcome any gut punch and you can have joy even when you're going through, you know, really tough times and maybe deep pain for other reasons, you can experience all those things and you can continue to chase your dreams. And I think for us, what's the most important out of all of it is that we do it in such a way that it helps other people too. It's not just about, you know, us feeling successful in our lives, but it's, it's about helping other people do the same. So you've written this fantastic book, Big, Bold, Brave, How to Live Courageously in a Risky World. For our listeners that are going to all run out and get a copy of it after listening to this podcast episode, what would be your first piece of advice for them as they crack open that book and get ready to start reading page number one? (laughs) Yeah. Man, that's a great question. You know what? I've done, I think I told you earlier, probably 70 interviews since December. No one has asked me that question, Christine. That's such a great question. You know, I think, I think the first thing I would say is, and I'm just going to reiterate one thing I said a second ago, is the posture. You already know the hardest part of my story that I share in that book. Do not go in this with the attitude that you're reading a book about grieving. Now it's going to have some triggers for people that have lost. It's just reality. Uh, I'm, I'm really raw and I'm really real with our experience and I've gotten enough, enough endorsements now to where I don't have to feel like this is, you know, any kind of boast, but I'm, I'm a pretty good writer too. And, and so the story is going to draw you into some of those for sure, but don't posture yourself like you need to read this as a grieving book. It's a book about life. So my second part of the answer would be this is I had a dear friend and I'm so grateful for this. I'd, I thought I was done writing the book and I sent it to one more person. She's one of my endorsements. And this is someone who's, who's written four books herself and has had uh, some commercial success and some other things. And she said, you know, there's one problem. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, <laughs> what's the problem? <laughs> and she's like, I, I had not put at the end of every chapter something to help people digest it and maybe mm. even, you know, take some sort of a tangible step. Now I had in some, but it was accidental. It wasn't intentional. So she says, I think you need to do that. So I, <laughs> I literally put the book down, you guys, cause I thought I was done. 
And I'm like, I can't do this today. So I just sat for like two, three months and then I came back. And after every chapter, there are, and I call them reflections. In some cases, it's just some very simple questions. In some cases, it's some exercises. You know, each chapter warranted something a little bit different, but there are things in it that if you will engage in it, it's going to help you customize what this book can do for you. Because it's not, at the end of the day, it's not about me. Mm -hmm. It's not about my story. My story doesn't matter. But there's a lot of things in the stories that I share, which I'll, I'll give you one little teaser. I also included four stories and four other freaking incredible human beings in this that I consider to be people that live big, bold, and brave. I don't even want to give anything else away because their stories are so radical. But there's so much in it that you can take it and customize it to who you want to become, what you want to experience in life, or what you may need to get over. And I think if you do those two things, it's 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 going to be a help. That's fantastic. Well, Clint, we really appreciate you taking us on this journey through your life experience and also sharing with our listeners this, uh, this book that I think can help so many people navigate some of the complexities they're going through in life. Where can our listeners find out more about it? And if they've been inspired and they want to learn more about you and have you come and speak to a group that they host, where can they, they get in contact with you? Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, first, for the book, pretty simple. They can get it anywhere books are sold. Um, I'm currently out of stock myself, so that's going to lead me to the best way to connect with me is my website, which I know you guys are going to put everything in the show notes. So if you go to my website, you can check into uh, anything about my speaking engagements because I also do. I want to be very clear on this because it may not be evident. I also do corporate speaking as well. I actually mm -hmm. super excited. A few days ago, I can't say who, but I just landed a talk with about 175 leaders in a global company that mm, you would know. And That's amazing. <laughs> I'm super excited about it. I can't put that out there That's yet. That's fantastic, but, man. But it's really, again, just to help people with basic principles. It doesn't matter if you're a person of faith or not, you know, but I, I do all that. So you can go to the website, um, you know, this is the funny thing that happened in building the website that I didn't expect for myself. I put a story about Gabriel. I put some videos of him flying and some other just really personal stuff that was totally just for me. And I found that actually people have enjoyed doing that as well. So there's some of that on there so you can get to know us a little bit better. But the website, far and away the easiest. And uh, I'm actually getting ready to reorder some books. So either way, whether you get them through me or through Amazon, whoever, you'll be able to pick up a book. Fantastic, Clint. And are there any last words of wisdom that you'd like to leave with our listeners today? You know what? I would like to leave them with three tenets of what I believe uh, about every human being. You'll find it on my website, but I think this is so true. And for those of you who are listening right now, I want you to hear my voice right now. I want you to really hone in on what I'm about to say, because there's chances are when, you know, we don't even know when you're going to listen to this that you may not be feeling this way, but these three things are true. I believe every human being was created to be courageous. I believe it's already in you. Now you may need some help tapping into it. You may need some friends and family and different people to help you recognize it, but it's there. The second thing is I believe that we were all uh, created with a creative genius. Now I actually have a talk, you guys, and a whole thing on that. 
that I can actually use science <laughs> to prove it. And there's a NASA study that would blow your mind that's super cool that I've used to, to help prove that point. But every one of you listening to me right now, you have a creative genius. It's in you. And, and it may be so easy for you that you don't even think it's a thing. But it's in there. You have uh, a creative genius that only you have that, that can bring great value to the world. But you've got to tap into it. And you've got to do things to hone that. And then the third thing is, I believe we are all created to be courageous. I mean, excuse me, compassionate. And I think you guys would agree with me. The world needs a lot of that. The yeah, world de- needs a definitely, lot of that. Yeah, definitely. And it's in you. It's in you. You have it. You can develop it. You can become more compassionate and, and just make a difference in the world around you. Absolutely. And I think that that's what I would like to leave our listeners with. And the thing that I've been pulling away from your story is despite the hardship and the heartache and the challenges that you and your family have faced and overcome, what I hear emanating from you is not just this desire to help other people live their best life, but just being like a genuinely kind human being that just radiates through the microphone. And so I think that's a really important life lesson is you can still go through all of the hard things in life and still be a decent, compassionate human being that's committed to leaving this world a better place. And so, Clint, thank you for making our world a better place. And listeners, definitely check out the show notes from today's episode. Um, I know that I have so greatly enjoyed this interview and just been really enthralled with your story and Chris, any last words you'd yeah, like I'll to say, leave? Yeah, thanks, Clint. Thanks for sharing your, your incredible story. Thank you, guys. I'm sorry for all the um, downs you've had in your your life, and um, you you put such a positive spin on it on the backside of such tragedy. And um, it's we're very grateful for you to being here today. No, thank you. I, I really appreciate you guys. And if I could just say one last thing to your listeners is I, I love what you guys are doing. You do such an amazing job. And I hope that people will continue to support you and just having these amazing conversations that just help so many people. Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks, Clint. Are you in the middle of wedding planning and feeling overwhelmed? There's no need to fret, my friend. Christine Smith Designs is here to rescue you. Offering wedding planning, coordination, and wedding floral design services, let us help relieve your stress and make your wedding day dreams a reality. Visit us at christinesmithdesigns.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-I-N-E smithdesigns.com and request a free consultation. You'll be so glad you did. I really appreciated how Clint was just, you know, so authentic with us. I really got a lot out of that conversation. Yeah, he was a great guy. And um, I feel, you know, he went through a lot of tragedy, especially with his son and flying and and all the, you know, down downturns he's had in his life. I think most of us, if you think about it, almost every person has had some bit of downturn in their life and they've had to figure out ways to overcome it, you know, face it and, um, you know, do their best. Right. Figure out how to be resilient. And I loved when he talked specifically about that, like the resilience and the carrying through and how to move forward, especially after, you know, navigating through the grief in the midst of the pandemic and figuring out how to like bond together as a family and stay together. And, you know, it was just, it reminded me a lot of 
just the amount of strength that people can have when they really commit to like not letting something get them down. And, you know, it's not to say that you don't have a right to struggle with depression and things like that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying like that really hard work of figuring out how to get out of the depths of despair. It takes so much energy, but once you emerge from it, you can learn so much from that journey. And I think it can help you to be a lot more empathetic with other people. Yeah, I think so too. I totally agree. You are the doctor. And didn't you get <laughs> didn't you get a degree in that, by the way, in empathy? No. What are you talking about? Oh, I thought you did. You're such a goofball. Oh, well, my mistake. Yeah. I mean, I will make one a year, so it's my mistake. But anyway. <laughs> well, this has been a fantastic episode, Chris. And where, if our listeners wanted to find out more about us and our guests from this week, can they find out more about us? Oh, you can go to our website, which is chrisandchristineshow.com. And all the information about our guests, Clint, and all this information will be in the show notes of this episode. Absolutely. So definitely make sure to subscribe to our show. Leave us a great five-star review. If you loved this episode, share it with a friend and check us out on our website. And we will be back with you next Next week. week.